HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. No matter how much you choose to give, you'll feel awesome next time you tune in, knowing that we wouldn't be here without you. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Plus, we have great member swag. Show off your HRN pride with a t-shirt or keep your hands safe in the kitchen with an HRN potholder. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org donate. Thanks for listening. Happy Tuesday. I am Andrea Ween, and you are listening to Meant to be Eaten. Joining me in the studio today is Sarah Lohman, fellow Ohioan and author of the book Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine, which chronicles the history of America's palate through eight ingredients, black pepper, vanilla, curry powder, chili powder, soy sauce, garlic, MSG, and sriracha. 
Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. So we were just talking before we came on air. Dan Pashman and I had a huge conversation when he came on the show. Uh, Dan runs the Sporkful podcast. Right. And we were talking about how we spatchcocked our turkeys last year for Thanksgiving. And now I feel like it's come full circle because you taught me how to (laughs) spatchcock last year. Yeah, I taught that class at the Brooklyn Brainery, amazing institution on how to spatchcock the best way to cook your turkey and the most fun sounding way to cook your turkey, I think, spatchcock. But I'm so glad that you, because I'd met some other people that took the class, but then they were like, oh, I still didn't. So I'm, I'm glad that you took the class and then executed the spatchcock. I did it. And I, it was also great to say spatchcock in front of my grandparents. <laughs> they were like, what is going on? And why is the turkey look a little crude? <laughs> it does. The turkey ends up kind of like spread eagle. And you, listeners, you should look it up because it's, it's maybe one of the most gruesome things I've ever done in the kitchen, but the turkey is the best. Spatchcock and dry brine, those are the ways to go. I guarantee it. Yep, I loved it. My sister yeah. still can't be in the kitchen when I do any type of spatchcocking. She can't listen to the crunching oh of the bones, if that gives anyone any clues of what you have God, to do. God, it is really, it's, it's, it's bad. Uh, Thanksgiving is being hosted at a vegetarian friend's <laughs> apartment this year, so I think she's going to have to leave the apartment as I get the birds ready on Wednesday night. But uh, yeah, spatchcock. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your book. So yeah. tell me how the idea for the book came up, how you decided to focus on flavors rather than dishes in American cuisine. You know, it's an idea that had sort of been percolating for a while before it became my book proposal. I had done um, a talk locally a few years ago called The Timeline of Taste. And I have always been fascinated by the idea that food tastes different in different time periods and began to look for the reasons why. And the spark for the, the whole idea, for the concept for the book, was vanilla. Because I knew after years years of working with historical recipes that before a certain date, really about the 1840s, there was no vanilla in American cookbooks. You didn't see it anywhere. But then by the end of the 19th century, vanilla was being used just as commonly as we use it in our kitchen today. And when I when I put that together, I realized that something must have happened there. And really, it took just a quick Google to realize that there was a pivot point And then I got curious as to what other sort of just like instant changes happened in American cuisine and why. You have a background as a food historian, and I know you worked where we're from, at uh, an old time uh, recreation (laughs) type place where you worked in the kitchen in the house. But talk a little bit about your journey as a food historian and how that career came to be. Yeah, it started old timey in high school, uh, or I worked at a museum where they did the 1840s, interestingly. I was in costume and character and, you know, in high school, and it was my first time connecting to history on a personal level and connecting to edible history, being able to ingest it, to take a recipe and make it into something real. And I love that connection. It's like playing a piece of music from 400 years ago. You can recreate a recipe too and have that connection to the past. And I went to art school and I was always just interested in how and why we reinterpret the past. And for my undergraduate thesis, I ended up opening a pop-up restaurant that sold revolutionary warrior cuisine to a contemporary audience as though we're like hip and cool. And then I ended up here in New York City. I worked for Grub Street, and that got me into the the modern, like, New York, really the foodie scene. This is about a decade ago when social media was starting up, when New York Magazine had just launched their blog. So the entire idea of what a foodie was was changing. People were really getting curious about where their food came from and the stories behind it. 
So I, I saw that people were hungry for that. No pun intended or pun intended. Let's go for <laughs> it. Um, but I found sort of ac- food culinary history to be very academic. And I realized that with my art and public history background that I could bridge that gap between the general public and the really amazing uh, culinary historical research that was going on. So I launched my blog, Four Pounds Flour, uh, 10 years ago, next month, I think. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm actually, it's on the verge of retirement because now with the book, I'm sort of moving on to bigger projects, bigger ideas. Um, but I guess I should say that I sent it for my newsletter. My newsletter is going to change and it's going to be more like personal essay based and fact of the month and what you can learn and uh, just a little bit more engaging. But the archives will stay up and there's 10 years of really bizarre, sometimes bizarre, um, really sort of like self-flagellating food writing and experiments up there on fourpoundsflower.com. That was actually one of my questions for later in the show, but since you mentioned it, we'll bring it up. What has been a discovery that you've come across in food history that's really shocked you? Um, that people ate only the like nose part of the moose. Well, I mean, people ate the rest of the moose, but that was considered a delicacy in the 19th century was even being served in soups in Delmonico's. So that was, you know, when people ask me some of my most memorable blog posts, that one comes to mind from hunting down the moose face to when it arrived at my apartment in a trash bag and it was literally (laughs) like just the top part of a moose's mouth and nose and then having to process that and I cried oh and I called the Brooklyn kitchen and asked them if they would butcher it for me I was like hi I've got this moose face and they're like you have a what and I'm like it's a it's a mooful it's the front of a moose's face I'm like could you please help me and they were like no we don't we don't do that (laughs) that doesn't sound hygienic don't bring that to us. don't bring that to us give it away so it was left on my own but finally I like I invited friends over that night to try this moose mooful stew so like a lot was on the line had to do it got through it it was miserable uh everybody liked it and then we ordered a pizza (laughs) (laughs) was it nutritional based was that why people were doing it or was it just the weirdness of it no I think neither it's a really kind of cartilaginous but also muscular they sort of have like a proboscis like a muscular nose that they can grab things with so I think it was a way to use every part of the animal but a little bit like uh, bird's nest soup in that it didn't have a lot of flavor, but it had a texture to it. I think that that was the appeal. Okay. All right. That one's weird. I'll give you that one. <laughs> Super weird. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about our tea and soul food episodes and how it was really the ingredients in each of those uh, that preceded the national or the regional divides in categorization. So when we think about certain ingredients, for example, tomatoes in Italy, mm-hmm. feta cheese in Greece, rice in China, how and why do nations grow to be associated with those ingredients when maybe they weren't actually from that place originally? You know, I don't know. I really don't think that there's one answer to that, that each one of those ingredients, they have their own story, their own origin story, how it got there, the turning point when people began to enjoy it, and often, too, a biological or scientific reason that we have a certain flavor preference for X. And in a way, that's the premise of the book, that I was looking at all these factors. You know, why was there the initial desire, what was the turning point that created, that made this ingredient or flavor more abundant, and then what is the biological craving for this flavor? So each one of those stories is totally different. So you talk a bit about that biological craving in garlic, for yeah, example. Yeah. That garlic can be passed down in the womb. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I have an Italian background. Yep. I'm obsessed with garlic. But what about we were talking before the show started too. You don't like bitter inherently, right, yeah. And you've been trying to force yourself to like it. And my husband does the same thing, and and I do it to an extent where he hated blue cheese 
for example, mm-hmm. for years, and he just kept making himself eat it until now he likes it. So where's that line? Where do you, where do you think about the balance between inherited taste yeah. and taste that we can evolve and, and grow Learn into? Learn taste, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A, an inherited preference is not necessary, but it certainly helps. And, um, you know, we can detect certain flavors within amniotic fluid, uh, within breast milk as well. Scientists believe that this is our mother's way of teaching us what food is good good and not poison before we're even out of her body, which I think is really, really amazing. But then there's the idea of learned taste that we can continue to do through adulthood. And as I was mentioning, adults actually tend to be more stubborn and set in their ways than children. I do the same thing your husband does. Even if I have foods I don't think I like, every time it's presented to me, I try it and try it again. And it takes between eight and 12 tastes for our body to become adapted to something. And basically what we're teaching ourselves can go back to this really primal level. We're teaching ourselves which food are not, is not poison, which food is good for us. And it can work the opposite way too. Do you have any flavor aversions? I'm not a huge fan of lemon. Lemon. And is there a reason that like lemon became the thing that you didn't want to eat? I don't, I don't remember. I just, there was a point when I started bartending in New York, actually. I didn't really realize it until Mm -hmm. then. I guess I probably hadn't had a lot of fresh lemon, to Mm -hmm. be honest. I'd Mm -hmm. had like, you know, the canned stuff that my mom made from concentrate Mm -hmm. growing up. Lemonade, yeah. Yeah, or like the the ice pops, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, I remember cutting lemons for the first time for my first bartending shift and being so horrified (laughs) by the scent. And people think that's so weird, (laughs) you know, especially because I love food. Um, And now in my recent years... Lately, I've yeah. been able to like have a squeeze of lemon and water, but that would have been completely so it's out of gradual. the question. Yeah, it, usually a flavor aversion happens when we've eaten something and then gotten sick afterwards. Um, and the connection is again, primarily, we eat something and it's poisoned us, so we get sick. More often now, um, it's if you eat a lot of something and then get the stomach flu. Or people avoid things like the flavor of tequila or coconut rum because they had a heavy night of drinking. So that's flavor aversion. You know, while you still might consume sweet things, for me, it's chocolate cake because I was little and my mom was testing chocolate cake recipes and I was eating a lot of chocolate cake. And then I got the stomach flu right afterwards. So I still eat sweet and I still eat chocolate, but it's like the particular flavor and texture of chocolate cake. My brain and body now associate it thinks chocolate cake poisoned me. I don't think it did. So it it goes both ways. We can train ourselves to like something by teaching our bodies it's good for us, but we can also ruin, we can have a flavor aversion to something because our body thinks that it poisoned us too. That's so interesting. And it kind of segues into this next point about food being more than just nourishment. So Mm -hmm. there was an Atlantic article written that quoted the book uh, and you saying the psychological signals of flavor are interpreted in the brain's frontal lobe, the part of the brain where emotional reactions are processed and personality is formed. Personal experience, our memories and our emotions all inform the experience. And then the article said, no Thanksgiving dish, which is very Mm -hmm. relevant right now, Mm -hmm. is an island. Each one carries its own weight of memory and emotional connection before we so much as take a single bite. So how do we think about this growing trend for what I'll call efficiency eating? Mm. So these are things like Soylent or protein powder or Seamless being able to order Mm. fuel really very quickly and cheaply from our couch. How does that affect this processing? You know, uh, that's an interesting question. I think that we'll have those same sort of flavor memories, even if we're talking about Soylent, which I've never had, but I imagine tastes like something. People, I don't know. Wallpaper paste Paste and (laughs) something. Crying Uh, children, I don't know. 
you know what? I have to admit sometimes that I've also been so immersed into work, like I wish that calories could just get in my body. So I kind of vaguely understand the need for Soylent or the desire for it in general. And I like flavorful food. But um, so part of the work I do other than writing, blogging, talking to you is I'm the curator of food program at the Lower East Side Tenement Museum. In our food programs there, we often ask people for their, their favorite childhood food memory. And sometimes that food memory is mom's homemade chicken soup or whatever, but sometimes it's going to White Castle, you know? So it can be fast food. It can be um, convenience food, efficiency food, the way you're calling it too. But their association with, let's say, that trip to White Castle as a kid is that they're doing it with their parents and their family. And it was a special thing that they did on Sundays after church. So even if we're talking about fast food, seamless, you know, convenience food, it's less, in a sense, the goodness, the wholesomeness of the product than it is the environment in which we're consuming it. Flavor is a combination primarily of taste and smell, and we know how triggering those things can be. Um, and even if it's a bad taste or smell, or even if it's one that other people might not consider good food, it can still trigger those emotions in you. I'm talking to Sarah Lohman, food historian and author of Eight Flavors. You're listening to Meant to Be Eaten. I'm Andrea Ween, and we will be right back after a word from our sponsors. One Hundred Bogart Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. One Hundred Bogart is a brand new, state-of-the-art co-working space that provides turnkey workspaces, including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate. Welcome back to Meant to Be Eaten. I'm here with Sarah Lohman, fellow Ohioan, food historian, and author of Eight Flavors. So Sarah, in the book, you talk about how American cuisines and taste are shaped by unknown or forgotten people and events, yeah. people like the Chili Queens, yeah. which I loved reading about this. So can you talk a little bit about them and how their work had a profound impact on how we eat? Sure. You know, I think beyond the eight flavors I focus in the book, um, each chapter really, it features an unknown culinary star. And I also love that everyone I've talked to connected with a different chapter. So yours was the Chili Queens. They were the ones for you. Yeah, I so, love them. So will you tell me, like, what is it about them that you loved? I wanted to go there. I wanted mm -hmm. to be part of that. I mean, I love when I travel to be able to go to food stalls. Mm -hmm. And I love that experience of communal outside eating. And I love spicy flavor. Mm -hmm. And Mexican food is my favorite cuisine. Mexican and Indian. Um, a lot of similarities there, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just loved how ballsy they were. Yeah. And their whole being was 
just so impressive to me. So uh, I love looking at food history because you get to tell the stories of women in history. And the Chili Queens were a group of women who, with their families, were selling chili in San Antonio, Texas. They popped up in the second half of the 19th century, probably originally feeding soldiers that were there. You know, there were a lot of conflicts. Um, Texas becomes a state. Um, And after Texas becomes a state in the 1840s, there is a pretty big bump in tourism. People want to go see this new part of America, particularly by the time um, the railways in the 1870s, 1880s. There's a direct route from New York all the way to San Antonio. So like what you did in the 19th century is you get off your train, you checked in at the Menger Hotel, you went to the Alamo, as we still do today, and then the guidebooks all said you had to go get a bowl of chili. And this was a food that was created in this region, um, created by Mexican, indigenous, and Spanish um, descendant people within Texas when it was still part of Mexico, um, originally just known as, um, well, it was like meat, beef, plus chilies, plus maybe a few other spices, but super, super simple. And uh, it became associated with Texas tourism. So the the women, it was families who were running these big outdoor, we can't even call them stalls. They would show up with a wagon and take out long tables and tablecloths and lanterns and really create this environment. And you could get all kinds of Mexican food, but they were known for their chili. And the person running the stall was usually sort of a young teenage, early 20-something daughter. And because these were very strict Catholic families, it was sort of unusual for a young woman to be out in public and you can just tell that they they were loving it you know that they were just they were joking and flirting and it really became the spectacle of these young women themselves that was just as appealing as trying this um, kind of foreign food to Americans too and usually the women work there with their parents making the food and their nephews and nieces running around until they themselves got married and moved into the home and started doing um, more traditional things for women at the time and then the mantle would get passed maybe to the next youngest daughter who would start running the family business So it was a little bit of freedom and a way for both women and people of color to find success and a little bit of fame through food. I think it's interesting. We had Krishnendu Ray on the show last week, and he was talking about how seeking out ethnic foods now is almost like this badge of honor. Mm. And I think we think back and... Uh, you know, obviously, throughout history, we've borrowed from so many cultures, Italian and German, and all of those things have been ostracized at one time or another in America. And what you're saying, too, is people traveled f- to eat different foods very early on in this sense. Absolutely. And I think something that's unfortunately quintessentially American is that we often accept the food before we accept the people. So in the articles from the late 19th century talking about the stands, you know, they're making the experience appealing and um, exotic and erotic too in certain ways, but they are eroticizing the women. They're sort of making them into objects and they're also using a lot of like really disgusting stereotypes for Mexican people in general um, especially when referring to the men so there's this you can tell there's this like white savior thing sort of mixed into the Spanish the Mexican-American war and the whole idea and we do the same sorts of things today you know we've got a Muslim ban that's now been put on hold several times but at the same time hummus has become a regular grocery store item so that concept Concept is we eat the food before we accept the people making the food as human beings. Is there something historically where that shifts? Have you seen in your research where, okay, we've been eating the food, eating the food, and then suddenly 
Italians are considered white or Germans are considered white. It's more about time. You know, when we're talking about groups of people, I wonder how long, how many generations before someone is American. Because Italians, not only were they brown when they came here, they weren't white, they were also Catholic, which was a big deal, as big a deal as we talk about Muslim cultures today. So how long before um, Muslim immigrants are just as American? Does it take 100 years? And at that point, are we going to turn and point the finger at whoever the news group is? So I think the main ingredient is time to make some someone into maybe not an American within their own image of themselves, their own hearts, but for the broader perception of them to be American. Do you feel like, in, in your opinion, that globalization and social media and all those things make that timeline longer or shorter? I hope shorter. Um, I think that a lot of what we're seeing in politics right now comes from anti-globalization, from fear, essentially, that the world is getting closer. And I do think it's possible for the world to be closer um, and for people to maintain tradition and maintain cultures. But um, now, you know, for a long time, our idea is you're American now. You're American. you got to shed all those things that you're supposed to be. That idea, you know, is never held entirely true, that especially around the holidays, that's when we're connecting to tradition and we're making the recipes that our Italian grandparents or Eastern European Jewish grandparents or our Chinese grandparents made. But um, I think that now more than ever, home means more than one place for someone. And home, like for you and me, can be both New York and Ohio, but for somebody else, it can be New York and uh, Bangladesh. And I think that that's a great thing, but I think that there's still a lot of fear of that, that you need to be one or the other as opposed to being both. You say that America has not yet developed its own school of cookery. So do you think that there is such a thing as American cuisine? And if so, what rules really define it? I didn't say that, to be fair. It was a 19th century woman who was writing about famous chefs um, in an article in like Hotels Magazine or something like that. I think American cuisine is the most complicated and fascinating cuisine on the planet. I think it's uh, difficult to give distinct rules. I get I, I try to lay out, well, the flavor of it is this. These are flavors that have transcended um, cultural groups and heritages and regionality, too. And why? Why are these our eight flavors, at least for the moment? But I think that American cuisine happens when a cuisine is transported here and then changes, evolves, mutates, maybe. And that comes through cultural appropriation, that comes through borrowing, that comes through something I call lateral appropriation, where if you're coming from India or China or Italy, you're suddenly living in an ethnic enclave with people from all over your country that you never would have met back home. And you're exchanging culinary ideas. And what comes out of that is something new. But not only that, you're also like looking down the next block and looking at what your Korean neighbor is doing too. And that starts influencing your food. The ingredients available here or not available here also evolve these recipes. And my favorite kind of reason that that immigrant food changes here is that if you have an immigrant group that's led by men, they're often coming from places where women traditionally did the cooking. So they're coming here trying to recreate food from home. They don't know how to cook, and they're doing it from a memory, essentially. And so you get something that's like food back home, but it is its own unique thing. We can thank that for um, basically all of Chinese takeout was sort of invented by men who didn't know how to cook. Um, Italian men in America are so invested in food making 
making because they came here alone and that really threw their wives when their wives showed up. So this is something we've seen several times throughout our history. I think, too, it's interesting, and you mentioned this in an article that I read, that food not only evolves when it comes here, but it sometimes stays the same. So this Mm -hmm. is the case for Jewish food, for Mm -hmm. example, Eastern European Jewish food, which might not actually have a home base so much anymore. So now you have these places in New York and across the country, and I know where we're from in Cleveland, there's actually a modern Jewish deli opening um, with Jeremy Umansky, who was the first guest on this show, Uh, but really preserving those food traditions that might not exist in a homeland anymore. Yeah, a Jewish cuisine, I think, is particularly interesting I mean, for many reasons in that there, is, there isn't a Jewish cuisine, like especially coming from Cleveland where we have that big Eastern European Catholic population. I came here and was given foods that were, uh, this is New York Jewish food, and I'm like, wait a minute. And I had this realization that Jewish food is really the food of a place that's then adapted to Jewish dietary law. However, since there is no homeland anymore because of the Holocaust, um, you've sort of torn those roots and that connection back to a motherland. So Jewish cuisine was dying out. It was becoming the food of nostalgia and tradition, and you were eating it at the holidays and funerals, and that's it. So now there is this new wave of young Jewish Americans um, in New York, uh, like Mile End and the Gefelteria, who are playing with innovating, changing this idea of Jewish cuisine, because they say if we don't innovate it, the food is just going to die out. It'll live only in history, not in the present day. So you end the book on sriracha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want to know, what's next for us in the U.S.? What does a post-sriracha America look like? A post-sriracha America is dramatically more Asian. You know, one of the funny things is, is it's been almost a year since this book has come out, and I've done more interviews than I can count. And I find it fascinating that people assume when they say the word American, they think white. They, they, it is synonymous with European Caucasian. But that's not what American means. That's not what American has ever meant. And now looking forward, America is going to be really, really not white. And one of our biggest uh, immigrant groups is coming from all over Southeast Asia, from India and China to Korea and Thailand, to really um, headed out by Vietnam, post-Vietnam War. Um, So now we're looking at immigrants that are still coming, as well as a first generation of Chinese and Vietnamese kids that were born in America to immigrant parents. And it's an Indian children born in America to immigrant parents. And they have those hyphenated identities. They are the bridge between the culture of their parents and the culture of mainstream America. So we're going to see a lot more of those foodways becoming daily shopping items as opposed to sort of exotic foreign cuisine. That's going to be American because those people are American now. It's exciting because I just think about how much more is out there to discover and and new cuisines coming and new flavors coming all the time. And America is, for all of our issues, such a place where you can have those conversations and can bring in those elements and they are embraced. And hopefully the timeline does get shorter where we're embracing the people as well. Um, What are you most excited about food-wise in 2018? In 2018, what am I most excited about foodways? Um, 
I live in Chinatown. I moved there about a year and a half ago um, in Manhattan. And that just really excites me every day. I just, I love going to Hong Kong supermarket and seeing what's on the shelves. I love seeing what people in my neighborhood are eating and learning about new foods and, and dragging my Chinese American friends with me so I can be annoying and go, what's that? What's that? What's that? Um, so I appreciate them taking on that responsibility of my education. It is not their obligation. <laughs> um, so I I just love what I can explore on a local level. I spend a lot less time thinking about sort of what the newest trend is or what the new Instagram food is, although as a former visual artist, I love a good, you know, Instagram-ready dish, I have to admit. I just love discovering what people around me are eating, you know, being nosy and asking what's that. That's always, I think, is what's going to motivate me um, as a foodie and a culinary historian no matter what year. Yeah, I used to live in a building in Chinatown as well that Mm -hmm. was half gentrified and half 90-year-old Chinese people. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to knock on their door and say, can I come into your kitchen and cook with you? And I regret so much that I didn't do that. My building smells so good. Like every day between like 6 and 8 p.m., there's a lot of young families in my building, um, uh, young Chinese immigrant families where the parents are immigrants, the kids are born here. Um, and actually my apartment doesn't have an oven. I have a four burner stove. So my building is, is fairly non-gentrified at this point, although they bought me a convection oven, which I thought was really nice of my landlord to like get the white girl concessions to do whatever a white girl needs to do in an oven, I guess, bake cookies, (laughs) which is what I do with it. Um, so I am really, really fascinated and also, yeah, I'm a little ashamed at like how nervous I am to try to communicate with my neighbors more. So maybe 2018 is the year for that. I'll start with a lovely, like uh, new year's present in February for all of my neighbors and see if I can start opening doors that way. I like that. Let me know if you get any invites okay. because I will definitely come <laughs> tag along and be two white girls in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. This question is a little out of left field based on the conversation, but I'm curious why you think people hate the term fusion food. Oh, I think it's just a little outdated now. I mean, fusion food is what we called what happens naturally um, in the early 2000s. Um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the Indian and Mexican food and the similarities between them. You love both of those cuisines because um, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there was a large immigrant population from the Punjab in the north of India in California. But because of um, changing immigration laws and anti-miscegenation laws, um, Indian men couldn't bring their wives over and they also couldn't marry white women. So they began marrying Mexican women who are also living locally. And of course, the result of that was Indian Mexican cuisine, which is now dying out because it tended to be that their children and grandchildren picked whatever identity they married into, whether it was the Mexican community or the Indian community. But up until about the 1960s, there were Indian Mexican restaurants that were serving things like roti quesadillas, because the spices are the same. Some of the ideas, the concepts are the same. So in in 1998, we'd call that fusion food, right? Um, But that wasn't the thought then. It was just sort of a natural evolution. So uh, one of the um, chefs that I quote is Jonathan Wu of Feng Tu in the Lower East Side, and um, also Mario Carbone, who runs Carbone, amongst other things. And they both really talked about that their food, Chinese-American, Italian-American, is the result of New York City, of being here and eating from everyone else's kitchen, from all these different immigrant groups, from all these different people, and then the natural result of those experiences for them. So I think fusion cuisine is just an out-of-date term. We've got a, a different understanding of what American food is, and it's always fusion cuisine. 
I think there's places too, like Goa Taco now that yeah. are trying to maybe bring some of those elements of Mexican and Indian back together. So it's I pretty interesting to see how that stuff might stick around. Do love Goa Taco. Very <laughs> delicious. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. I know you have a paperback book release today yeah. of your book. My so you paperback wanna... comes out today. So if you want a floppier, bendier version of Eight Flavors, you've got your wish. Um, and also cheaper. It's perfect for Christmas gifts. And if you are listening now and living local, there is a big release party tonight at the Gatehouse Bar at Kings County Distillery. Um, I will be there selling books and also signing books too. And you can also buy bottles of Kings County's amazing bourbon. So you can get all of your Christmas shopping done tonight. Booze and history, kids. Booze and history. And it's a great bar, too. It's a great space it with is. amazing cocktails. So um, 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. tonight, which is Tuesday, November 14th. Awesome. And while we're in that same vein of events, Heritage Radio Network is doing our first ever fundraiser on December 4th. So mark your calendar. Go to heritageradionetwork.org to get your tickets. It's going to be an awesome evening. Sarah, thanks again so much. My pleasure. I'm Andrea Ween, and this has been Meant to be Eaten. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.